This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And you can only endure suffering and you can only repent if you really believe that Christ extends his grace to you. Like that is the only way anyone has the courage to repent. And it's the only way that you can endure suffering is if like you deeply understand what Christ's grace means. In a world that feels turned upside down by polarization and a pandemic, it's hard to know how to move forward. But maybe we don't simply move forward by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or ignoring suffering. Maybe there's actually a way through. And the Chinese church has something important to teach us Westerners. In this conversation, I chat with Hannah Nation and Ryan Zhang about their work on the book, Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. Have a listen and be encouraged. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. During the next three months, during June, July, and August, you can expect episodes to release every other Tuesday. As the seasons change and our schedule changes, I hope it allows you to not miss an episode. So I'll see you back in two weeks. All right. It is really fun. I am joined today by two guests who have put out an excellent book together called Faith in the Wilderness, Words of Exhortation from the Chinese Church. So I'm excited to talk through what the Chinese church can teach us. And to start us off, would you just introduce yourselves and let us know a little bit about where this project came from? Yeah, I'm Hannah Nation. I currently live in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm the managing director for a project called the Center for House Church Theology. And we're focusing on trying to help bring um, really the voices of Chinese house church pastors um, out from China, translating their writing and their preaching into English and hopefully eventually other global languages, um, translating them and publishing them for those outside of China so they can access them and read them. I'm also the content director for uh, China Partnership, which works on training and resourcing um, house church movements within China. And I've been involved with China for close to 20 years now. Um, someone recently said it was more than 20 years. And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> don't give me the additional years. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, I first went to China in 2005. 
Um, so yeah, it's been a privilege and an honor to see what the Lord is doing there. Oh, thank you. And Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, my name is Ryan Zhang. I am working full-time as a pastor in a PCA church in Cincinnati, but also my church gave me one day a week to work for China Partnership as the translation manager. So I helped them manage a translation team to translate contents out of China. I'm also a fellow at the Center for House Church Theology. So that's how I um, overlap. You know, I, I get involved in these projects and stuff. So these um, sermons come out of China in 2020 and that um, we took a bunch of them and translated them and put them in this book. But um, I grew up in China. I was born in China until the age, I lived there until the age of 12. And then we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, my whole family then. And then um, I've been here since 2000, well, since 1999, but I lived in the East Coast for 11 years before moving back again five years ago. That's wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit, guys, about how this book came to be. What what do Chinese pastors have to teach us? You know, you you write in the very beginning about this this gathering of Chinese pastors, and then you know, finding out um, about COVID nineteen and its spread, and how that moment was kind of a catalyst uh, for for this volume, really long term, but also a larger catalyst about. You know, how do we live as faithful Christians amidst persecution? Yeah, so this book, um, as you said, it really came out of the beginning of the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, essentially, what was going on was that um, there was a large conference in Southeast Asia for um, Christian leaders in various uh, Asian contexts. Um, there was a large presence of Chinese house church leaders that were there and were involved with the conference. Both Ryan and myself were, were at that conference, um, helping staff it in various ways. And the week, um, you know, it's basically the week leading up to the first day of the conference um, was when everything broke out in Wuhan. And it was pretty amazing just to watch the Chinese delegation um, navigate the situation and um, just the kind of the gravity of the situation. And one of the decisions that they made was to um, openly, you know, stream um, the conference talks back into China because so many people were no longer able to travel from China to attend the conference. And this was a pretty unprecedented decision. Um, you know, I, if your viewer or your listeners aren't familiar with China, there's um, very strong regulations on the internet. Um, and, you know, really nothing that you put online in China is secure for those involved. So, this, this was definitely taking significant risk onto themselves to do this. Um, and when the conference concluded, you know, all of these um, Chinese attendees were, were heading back into China um, with really kind of unknown circumstances ahead of them. Wuhan had been locked down. Um, several other cities had already been locked down. And um, there was a decision made um, basically to, um, the motto that they adopted was to let the light shine in the darkness. 
Um, and um, there was a group of pastors that um, organized and um, began preaching evangelistically online. And the heart behind it was just basically that pandemic is exactly the time to be focusing on, on evangelism and making the good news of Jesus known publicly. Um, so they would have these online um, preaching events and it was all open access. Anyone across the country could join. Um, again, this was you know risky for those involved. Um, they would not hide their faces or um, kind of you know hide who they were. It was very open and public. And we don't really know exactly how many people um, you know logged in. I've tried <laughs> several times to get numbers, but um, the best answer that I've received is that um, they're confident that tens of thousands of log of devices logged in across the country. Um, so mm -hmm. it was, you know, a pretty uh, significant uh, viewership or, you know, um, number of people listening to these sermons. So, yeah, I think one of the things that just really stood out to me is just how much they um, really just had a heart to preach the gospel through the pandemic, um, really, especially to those who had mm -hmm. never heard the gospel. Um, they also had a heart to encourage believers, but I think there was just this very keen awareness that it was a crucial time to be, to be preaching evangelistically. So once we heard that this was happening, um, Ryan and his team uh, basically started translating almost simultaneously as it was happening. So we were receiving content um, mm -hmm. throughout the year of 2020, and they were working on translation. And then, um, you know, it, it became apparent pretty quickly that the content was really, really good and um, able to speak beyond the Chinese context. And so um, after the translation team did their part, then I worked on putting it together into a book. So. I'll let Ryan talk more about translation. Though. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. So Ryan, I'd love to hear what was that process of translation for you? And, you know, did it help? I, I mean, I imagine immigrating to the U S when you're 12, like middle school years are awkward just generally, but then, you know, moving countries on top of that, you know, was it a way to, for you to process even your own story as well, this translation project? Yeah. I think in my own story, I have grown up in China and I received a very typical public school education in China and it's emphasis on atheism that all religions are superstitious, doesn't matter what. And then so hmm. coming out to America, I um, became connected to Christianity and eventually became a Christian and pastor myself, but I did not know much about what's happening in China in terms of churches and hmm. Christianity. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I've heard that there are Christians in China, they're mostly rural Christians in house churches, small, underground, and very moralistic because they did not, a lot of the pastors did not receive a lot of, um, or any seminary theological training. So they rely on what they could read on their own, so rely, on the, rely on their own head knowledge, which tends to be a combination of Chinese moralism, and some Christianity. Mm -hmm. So 
in the last few years, as I was getting more involved with this gospel movement in China, and I became more aware of the urban house churches in China that have received a lot of Christ-centered preaching, Christ-centered theological, theological training. And that gave rise to a huge gospel movement in China that's been spreading like fire. And that was a very big surprise to me. Also, it's it's um, very good for me to hear because it's coming out of my the same theological tradition that I come that I currently work in. So it's a huge, it's very rewarding project for me to see the fruit of this movement and to see how it's impacting China. And and so these Chinese pastors who preach these sermons have received the same training that um, the, the training that China Partnership and other organizations gave them. And then we could see their thoughtfulness after receiving these theology and reflection and contextualization mm -hmm. in China. So we could see how it's taking root in China and how it's being applied into different situations in Chinese cities. But at the same time, we could also see the people in China listening in and with eagerness, with thirst, and taking in every word. And because they feel the same pressure that all Chinese citizens face in, in China, materialism, the loss of moral compass, pandemic, and, and just a lot of people have questions, but they are able to receive for, for many of them the first time, a, a view of the gospel that's not moralistic, that's not based on their own performance, it's good news to them. So translating these projects helped me understand one, help, help me understand Chinese society better because China's changed a lot since the 22 years I've been here. But also help me understand how the gospel could speak to different cultures that have a huge impact on other cultures than our own. And that it's not just a Western faith or a Western religion. Yeah, that's really, that's really powerful. Yeah, so we have a process for our translation is that we, these were recorded sermons so we have to first transcribe them into just a manuscript in Chinese and then we usually have two bilingual translators work on them the first person translated into English and then so we have the Chinese and the English side by side and then we have the second translator takes a look at both of them and compares the translation with the Chinese and makes sure it's correct and also the second translator would smooth out the English writing to make it more readable, to make it more accessible for Western audience. And then um, after that, we send it over to an English editor. So the English editor would just look at, look at English and put footnotes in and edit it. So it takes a whole team to do that. And I, I work with a team of, I think, nine to 10 translators. So all of them are involved in this project. And so everyone have a hand in this role and it's really a true team effort. I love that. Um, what do you, you know, as you were translating and, you know, as you're editing, Hannah, what, um, what does the Chinese church really have to teach us as Americans? One thing I really appreciated you, you writing about in some of the introductory material was, you know, how the American church really just kind of turned inward and realized, you know, the pandemic has shown us a crisis of discipleship and that somehow the Chinese pastors were both being evangelistic and focusing on encouraging um, their parishioners. So, you know, what what kind of lessons did you glean as you were translating, as you're editing these sermons? So many. <laughs> um, it's hard. It's hard to pick out a few, but um, I think there are two things that have 
just really stuck out to me. I think the first is exactly what you just said. You know, the Chinese church, I think, um, is, is I, I have seen them be able to hold together um, evangelism and discipleship in a way that I really struggle to see here in the U.S. I think, um, and, and that's not to criticize the, the American church, but to say that they have a strength that I think we can really glean from and learn from. Um, I think that um, part of it just arises out of um, just their social reality in China, which is that most Christians are first generation Christians, um, maybe second generation, but it's very rare to meet entire families um, that all claim the faith. Um, they also live in more multi-generational homes than we live in. And one of the results of that is that if you are doing something like these pastors were doing where you are preaching openly to a very large group of people that you don't know, you have to assume you're going to be preaching to both believers and non-believers because especially during lockdowns, people were isolating in their homes which is a, mi a multi-generational mix of both believers and non-believers. So mm -hmm. if one mm -hmm. person has their laptop open and is listening to this sermon um, and the whole family is sitting around listening to it, chances are by default, there's going to be one Christian in the family who's logged on and they've kind of brought all of their non-believing family members to the laptop to hear as well. So, you know, I think there are, for sure, just sociological cultural differences that lead to this difference between the churches we are watching in China and our churches here. Nonetheless, I, I do think that just in their preaching, um, it's really clear like how able they are to speak to both audiences, you know, and um, how much they they go deep. It's not a watered down gospel message or presentation. It's pretty rigorous and pretty deep, but they're able to keep it very simple and very engaging. And I think that is how mm -hmm. they, they kind of marry these two realities together. I think they also have a very keen awareness that there's no Christian who doesn't need to hear the gospel over and over again. <laughs> you know, that, that discipleship isn't yes, just yes. about um, like learning how to live a certain way, but it's pre knowing how to preach the gospel to yourself over and over again and receiving God's yeah, grace yeah. over and over again. But I think probably the second thing that just really stands out is how much they are um, very comfortable with a language of suffering that um, we just struggle to have in the U.S. And, um, you know, I think it's been interesting. A lot of the response to the book that we're seeing is just a lot of people saying, um, we just don't know how to suffer in the U.S. We don't really know what it means. And I was just talking with one of my coworkers and she was saying, and I think she's right. She's like, I think we do suffer in the U.S. We're just kind of in denial about it, you know? And, and I think, um, they are so brutally honest <laughs> just about what it means to be human and 
the suffering that we endure in this life. And they have this very rich theology that stands behind it and a view of Christ and his suffering that informs um, their views of human life and the what it means to walk with Christ in this life, you know, and, and they are so clear in saying, you know, Christ, Christ's life on earth was a life of suffering and the servant is not above the master. And so um, we can expect that our life will also look like Christ's life. And I think that's a hard truth for Americans. <laughs> um, but one that, that mm-hmm. is actually, I find there to be a lot of freedom in when you do start to meditate on it more. I'll let Ryan chime in. Yeah, I think the, the suffering is not new to a lot of people and even Americans. And I think in China, depends on the generations you were raised in, a lot of people gone through very huge social upheaval, even you know in the last 30 years, like since I was born. China's gone through a lot and and there are a lot of people, even in my own age, you know, we were the later end of uh, the, the Chinese upheaval and things have been relatively stable in the last 20, 30 years, but still a lot of prosperity. A lot of people remember living in poverty, living in harsh times. And, and for my parents' generation, they lived through cultural revolution. They lived through a lot of tough mm-hmm. things. And so suffering for them is not new and it's, a regular experience and even in school we were taught to to persevere through suffering we were taught that suffering builds character and it's a very ancient chinese virtue so suffering for chinese people is not unwelcome mm. we don't like it but you know we we kind of were taught to expect to grow in it but i think what christianity gives to chinese church and to mm. the people yeah. in china is that not only that you have to endure suffering but give you meaning what suffering is and what it does to you and and also the hope on the other mm. side is not just purely mm. getting through it but that not just waiting for it to be over but this joy in it and the suffering actually eventually bring you glory and that's something that we don't have in china until people get to know jesus and know what it means to be united to him Are you worn out by hurry and hustle, and yet you don't know what it looks like to find a better way? Well, Jasmine Holmes called my book, A Spacious Life, balm for a weary soul. Tish Harrison Warren called it a needed tonic, and Jen Pollock-Michelle talks about it as rescuing us from the siren call of self-help. Join these women as they have experienced both their own limits and seeing how my book, A Spacious Life, helps all of us to embrace the goodness of our God-given limits. Find out more at aspacious.life. That's aspacious.life. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. 
Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Besides reading this book a lot of times, <laughs> you know, how, how might the American church and leaders in the American church or even just Western churches more broadly even begin to think about suffering as something that is beautiful, that shows us more of the heart of God, um, that shows us who we are in Christ, that we're united with Christ? How do we make steps uh, to begin to learn this lesson? Um, well, I think... I, well, <laughs> um, so it's interesting. I worked on this book through, uh, I would say, a period of personal suffering. Um, my family was um, essentially dislocated by the pandemic. Um, it's a long story that I won't go into, but we were, um, in a sense, homeless for a year and a half. We had extended family we were living with. Um, and I think working on this book while going through that experience really transformed, um, my thoughts on suffering because, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of these, um, pastors in China for a long time, and I've heard them talking about suffering for the entire time. And, you know, I'll admit like when they, like probably prior to my own experience, um, whenever they would say that um, walking with Christ necessarily involves participating in his suffering, I would just have this like, I would bristle. That's like the best way to like, I would just have like this, like this reaction of just like, no. Um, and I think that like, that is the American response to <laughs> suffering, like is just that visceral, like this goes against everything that my culture tells me to expect from life. Um, and it's, it's this like dissonance of just like how, you know, and I, so I think I, I also remember like my general response was kind of this feeling of like, well, I, I haven't really suffered in my life. So does that, are you telling me I'm not really a Christian? Like, are you telling me that I don't, I'm not a Christian like you are <laughs> because I haven't had this like feeling of suffering in my life. Mm -hmm. Then when like a, a version of hardship and suffering came to my life, I've I found myself struggling still because I kept thinking like, well, this isn't as bad as like persecution. Like I know people who are like in jail, like right now. Right, right. And I'm just grumpy and upset because like, I don't have my own beautiful, you know, Instagrammable home right now, you know? Um, so then I felt like, well, the solution is like, <laughs> mm -hmm. I just need to like buck up and bear it and like be okay. Cause that's the other very American response. It's just like, be okay. You know? Um, and I think it really wasn't until I was just able to 
sit with Christ and just say, you know what, like, this is hard. And like, it's not shameful for me to experience this as hard. Um, it's not like, I'm not a weaker Christian because like my version of suffering, um, like involves like this kind of um, discomfort. Um, I think that what I realized is that, um, you know, suffering is, is really multifaceted. You know, we, we want kind of like the one answer. Like I think in the U S we tend to just immediately go to medical, like physical suffering. I think, um, in China, like it's very easy to go to like persecution narratives. Um, but the reality is, is that like this life is hard, you know, and whether, you know, it involves, you know, things like persecution or things like homelessness, whether it involves, you know, the mortification of sin. I think like for lots of people putting to death sin in your life feels like suffering, um, whether it's like hard family life situations, you know, mm -hmm. like I have lost I have people in my life I can think of that living faithfully in their families <laughs> is suffering, <laughs> whether it's in the church, like I've been in churches where it's like, it is mm -hmm. suffering to be a member of this church, you know? Um, but like, I think that is <laughs> yeah. the beauty of listening to my Chinese brothers and sisters is that because there's a more of a language of suffering, like it's easier to talk about, like it's easier to like live in it because it's just more a part of the conversation, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I think, um, there's not like a one easy answer, like here's how to learn how to suffer. <laughs> um, but I think it's in part, we just need more of like a language of it, you know, and more of a language of like, um, naming it yeah. and yeah. knowing Christ is with us in it and not feeling like we have to be okay all of a sudden, you know, like in these sermons, like they often are talking about situations where like, it's not okay in a sense, but it is in an eternal sense because they're so focused on Christ. So that's my very long, like not your answer. Mm. So. Mm. <laughs> but. I love it. <laughs> it's all good. Ryan, I'd love to hear too, though, you know, as you're reading and translating these sermons about suffering, how does that help you as a pastor in your current context? There is uh, a, a refreshment, like it's refreshing because the, we are really seeing for maybe in my lifetime, I don't remember seeing it at all, that you see Christianity entering into a major big culture. It's not for the first time, but for the first time in terms of like, let's see um, how, how widespread it is in China. There have been missionaries in China for 200 years, more than 200 years, but this is really first time the majority of Chinese people get to have contact with Christianity and mm -hmm. then especially in major cities. So you see the first time Christianity entering into a big culture, also entering into a developed country, not into a third world country, but to like to major cities mm -hmm. in China with giant buildings and huge economic development. So you see a, a sense of refreshed urgency in the gospel. 
And also you see a sense of thirst for how people receive it. And we don't see that a lot in American society. And you know, we are more or less with whether you're a Christian or not, you're familiar with the at least some basic Christian beliefs. So, you know, every week we would go up and we preach, try to preach Christ-centered sermons and Old Testament, New Testament, we always try to end up with, you know, a sense of hope, talk about Jesus dying on the cross. And then sometimes I could kind of feel my, the members of my church is like roll their eyes. You know, there's Ryan again, you know, there's Jesus. All right, you know, he's talking about Samson just 20 minutes ago. Now he's talking about Jesus. Of course, he's, he's right, getting out right, of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and I think because we're so familiar with Christianity, with the gospel, that we tend to just kind of tune out sometimes. And when we go through tough experiences in our own life, we don't really draw from the resource of the gospel. We don't really tend to preach to ourselves because it's just so common. We, just, we know it so well in our hearts. We don't really do the work to apply it to our lives. And I think when I read these sermons, and especially these sermons preached in the context of the pandemic, that for them, it is a lot of times the first time they hear it, or it's applied to them in a way that's so refreshing that you see how well it's received and how it's impacting the people there. And you know, I could you know imagine just people, a family huddling in front of a uh, computer screen and, and listening for hours on to hear these gospel messages because it does mean something to them. So when I think about that it challenges me to how to shape my sermon in a way that would really go into mm -hmm. people's mm -hmm. heart, but also challenge just average, average Americans, Christian, to think about does the gospel have the same power it has in our lives as it did in other people's lives? And that if it does mean something, if it's true, then the gospel should also speak as much hope to us in our pandemic as in their pandemic. And so how do we receive that and how do we mm -hmm. learn to see it new again, even though it's been so familiar to us? That's good. Um, yeah. How has this helped kind of wake you guys up individually or corporately in your particular context or churches, you know, so that then, you know, even sharing these stories as you're doing interviews, um, that it's been a refreshment to the Western church. I'd love to hear kind of maybe if there's, you know, one particular story from the book that, that has been particularly meaningful or surprising? Yeah, I think I've always said that um, when I look at the Chinese church, it, it reminds me of what it means to be an Easter people and that Americans like to think of, Americans tend to be more Christmas people. We like to think of Jesus' incarnation, him being with us, that we want to be comforted by his presence. We want to know that Jesus loves us. We talk about the cross, that he died for us, that he is, he shows us his love, that he's with us. And that's all true. And, and I think even culturally, right? You know, Christmas Day, Baker's holidays these days, then Easter. But I think when we look at the Chinese church, it's reminding me how much hope it is in Easter that yes, it's all true that Christ is with us, Christ died for us, he loves us. But that's not the hope itself. The hope is that beyond this cross, there's glory. Mm -hmm. And that's what gives them the hope to keep going. And that's what gives them perseverance in faith. And so the book, even you can see the arc of the book is set up to be, you know, three different sections, um, 
first section is brokenness and the redemption and the last section is hope. And remember the, even the last chapter is um, on the other side of the sea and it's talking about revelation. And it's a very beautiful imagery of what it means to be on the other side of the sea when all the chaos of the sea in the Old Testament is all gone, is wiped away, that you are worshiping God together. And, and that gives us a sense of direction, not just present Christ present with us here, but we are going somewhere with Christ and he is ahead of us. We're joining him That's somewhere good. else. And that, um, especially that the, 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 the image of worshiping on the other side of the sea. I remember we were in a conference last year and we had some Chinese past Chinese Christians in America sharing about their experience under persecution and how they have to move locations almost every Sunday to just gather to worship because they've been raided by police. And, and the, 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 the man just said almost like crying. He said, you know, I just want to worship. And I don't think we care about going to Sunday worship as much because it's so common yeah. and so mm -hmm. normal for lives. But for them, it's not just that they want to get together with their friends, but like joining in worship reminds them where they're going. It's the other side of the sea that they could taste here on this side. But when they worship together, it's showing them what it means eventually when they worship together on the other side of the sea that's beautiful um i think for me i mean <laughs> ditto everything right <laughs> but um i think another just strand that i've been mulling on that's been really um just powerful for me personally um is how much um just repentance is really kind of in throughout all of their speaking and their writing and you know I think that's another very um, dissonant thing in kind of American evangelicalism is is to be talking about repentance at the same time you're talking about suffering and um, I think that you know you have to be really really careful because they are not saying that they are suffering because they need to repent of something. So I don't think they tie the two together in that way. But I do think that um, they're very vocal in, in saying that suffering is an opportunity for repentance and self-examination. And so I think just, you know, even in, in my life, um, through our kind of pandemic years and experiencing, I think that probably was one of the reasons it was hard for me to process suffering, not only because of just this feeling of like, this is, you know, so not what I think I should be having, <laughs> um, but also just, you know, like, I think it's, it's um, tempting for us to go into this place where we say like, oh, I'm suffering, like, did I do something wrong? um like did I do something that like caused me to come here is God just like smiting me because I did something wrong and I think like there's just nothing about that in their language like there's nothing in their language that um would lead you to that place um but because it's such an opportunity for self-reflection it's such a beautiful time to be able to look and say like where are things that I need to let go of? Like, how is Christ trying to transform me and change me in this? And so 
repentance is not this transactional thing, but rather this just like beautiful opportunity to like lay aside um, our sins and to like walk forward towards Christ, you know? And so just, you know, in my own life, just being able to say like, yeah, like I deal and struggle with all the materialism and all of the, like the idols of my heart surrounding like stuff and losing my home, like, it's not because God's angry at me, but there's this great opportunity for me to like grow and change and repent of the idols that have been ensnaring my heart, you know, and in the book, um, there's this one section, um, where Brian Lee talks about just this horrible fight that he has with his wife. And I just remember like, the first time I read that when I was editing it, just like, I had to like reread it over and over again. Cause it was just like, wow, like I've never, like I've never encountered a pastor who was like so open about this, like very intimate thing. Now, if you've read the book, like he essentially gets caught on zoom accidentally by his students having this just like all out horrible fight with his wife. And he talks about how yes, in that yes. moment when he realizes he's caught um, and they've been watching him have this fight with his wife that like he has two responses, right? Like one is to either try to hide it and to like live in that shame that like hides and protects and wants to save our face. The other is to like say like, yeah, I need to repent and to like find freedom in that and um, be open and honest about who we are and where we need the grace of Christ. And I think that's where like, I'm seeing these themes of repentance and of suffering cross over is that like they're, they are living at, like they're learning and meditating on and living out what grace means in this really profound way. And you can only mm -hmm. endure suffering and you can only repent if you really believe that Christ extends his grace to you. Like that is the only way anyone has the courage to repent. And it's the only way that you can endure suffering is if like you deeply understand what Christ's grace means for you and your life. And um, so I think mm -hmm. it's been just this awesome opportunity and experience over the last two years to just like listen to them and glean from them in my own life it's had a huge impact I think on my own walk with the Lord and I'm really thankful for it oh that's great and you know thank you guys both for just really articulating just some specific ways in which you have been ministered to and the ways in which it's caused you to re-examine your own work in ministry and um even uh yeah even just the ways in which you have been ministered to has been a, a beautiful invitation. So thank you. Um, but as we conclude, I love to ask everybody their laundry routines. And, you know, the reason for this is that, of course, all of these big things do matter, but our laundry does too. And, you know, like these Chinese pastors are connecting the dots between the goodness of the gospel and the actual on the ground reality of of their congregants. So too, I hope that, yeah, even our laundry routines will point back to the glorious story that we're a part of. So Ryan, you want to tell us first, what does your laundry routine look like? Uh, I may sound kind of spoiled, but um, I, my mom lives with us. Uh, kind of like a Chinese thing too. To uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, my mom, 
my mom lives with us, but she's home a lot of times by herself during the day when our kids are in school and we are work. And so she would start the laundries. And we usually do like two or three no- loads at a time. Yep. And so she would start the laundry and go through the dryer, washer and dryer, and then she would leave them in the basket unfolded because then by the time she finished laundry, we're all home and she needs to start cooking all that. So when we, after we put our kids to bed, I would sit down in front of the TV, turn on some kind of British murder mystery or yes. <laughs> comedy and then fold laundry and it took me about half an hour to 45 minutes. So that's it. Nice. So I love that communal communal care. It's beautiful. How about you, Hannah? What does your laundry routine look like? Our laundry routine, um, we, well, we usually do Friday family movie nights. And so I'll usually start all of our laundry <laughs> on Friday nights, <laughs> simultaneous like movie night. Um, but I call it going into the tunnel. There's a, actually, there's a really good New Yorker cartoon. You'll have to look it up. And it's just this like guy on a boat going into a tunnel. And he's like, I'm headed into the tunnel of laundry or something like that. <laughs> and it's, that's exactly how it feels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's closing around you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you guys. Um, how can we help support this work? Um, where can people find you and the work that you are doing? Wait, do we get to ask you what your laundry routine is? Oh gosh. My laundry. Well, as I was saying before we started recording, my laundry is actually going right here because we had a child who was sick in the middle of the night. So generally the laundry isn't quite, you know, happening during the podcast recordings. But um yeah, usually I do I I pester my children to do their own laundry. Um, and sometimes it happens and it rarely gets folded. Uh, I do all the sheets and towels and my husband does our laundry. So, and eventually it gets folded with, yeah, the aid of, of a TV, either a movie or his uh, YouTube maker channels that he likes to watch all the people, you know, building houses in the wilderness. So <laughs> that's what it looks like in the Hales household. Uh, but yes, how does it, what does it uh, look like for us to support your work? Um, tell us where we can find out more. Um <laughs> Ryan and I are figuring out who's going to go. Yeah, so I I mean, there are kind of two ways uh, to answer that. So to to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can um, simply look up the Center for House Church Theology. The website is just housechurchtheology.com or also on social media. Uh, my name is Hannah Nation. I'm on social media. You can find us in all those various ways. I really encourage people to um, get on the center's mailing list, which you can do on the website. Um, we um, have a lot more coming out in the coming years. We have another book coming out this December already, and then we already are working on our, our next two projects. So, which I'll, and I, one of the things that I think is really exciting is Great. these four initial projects, they're all very different from each other. And so um, it's going to be a really um, well-rounded mm-hmm. slate of books coming out. But, but I think um, what I would just say is, you know, um, Chinese, the Chinese pastors, the Chinese church, you know, Ryan and I just talked a lot about a lot of things that we can learn from them, ways that we think God is being 
particularly gracious to them and ways to look up to them. They are not superhero Christians, though. Um, they are humans, just like all of us. And as much as you see um, Christians in our context struggling and our churches struggling, um, the Chinese have their struggles as well. And there's just always a need to be praying for them and um, praying, I think, especially for their families and mm -hmm. just um, how to, yeah, yeah, just pray, <laughs> pray for them. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let Ryan chime in. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Great. Yeah, I would add that to pray for them, the the one of the easiest way or the 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 way to help you would be go to China Partnerships website. We have a prayer page, prayer campaign that um, you could sign up to receive prayer updates weekly or even daily. Um, so that to tells you how to pray for the Chinese church, what's happening there. And and this year we're going through the Psalms, praying for China through the Psalms. So Hopefully that way you could also make it more into your personal devotional practice, read through a psalm, but also by mm. reading through the psalm, guide you how to pray for this aspect, certain aspects of Chinese church. Mm. Thank you. We'll put all those links in the show notes. So thank you guys for sharing. Thank you for your good work, um, your your own growth and vulnerability and, and bringing these stories to us. We so appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks, Ashley. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan and Hannah. You can find out more about the China Partnership as well as the Center for House Church Theology. There's links to the newsletter, signups, and prayer guides as well in the show notes. And I love to leave my listeners with one small step. And this week, I would love to encourage you to actually go click that link, sign up to pray because we are so deeply connected as Christians across the globe. And sometimes we can be more formed by our culture and our nations than about the gospel and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So one quick way to remember that you are connected to a historic and global church is to go and simply pray for churches across the globe. So I encourage you also to pick up a copy, of course, of Faith in the Wilderness. Click that link, sign up to pray, and be reminded that big things matter. But so does your laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.